One of the greatest mysteries of Scripture is the relationship between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Scripture teaches us about the will of God, and it teaches us about the will of man, and there is a tension that we feel as we begin to understand what the Scripture says. Here's what the Scripture teaches about the will of God. Scripture teaches everywhere that God is absolutely sovereign. When God created the universe, he determined every detail of history from the beginning to the end. God does whatever he pleases, and God works all things according to the counsel of his will. God's sovereignty in Scripture extends to events as significant as the overthrow of a nation to events as insignificant as the roll of the dice. Scripture also teaches that God's sovereignty extends to the in-time decisions and ultimate destinies of every person in history. We could summarize what the Bible says about God's sovereignty like this. Anything that happens in God's universe happens because God willed it to happen. Anything that happens in God's universe happens because God willed it to happen. This is the sovereignty of God. Now here's what Scripture teaches about the will of man. Scripture teaches everywhere that man is fully responsible Human beings are not puppets on a string, but rather we are willful creatures who make real decisions in the real world before the one true God. Though we all face constraints in our decision making based on the situations we find ourselves in. For instance, I, I wish I could will myself to have a certain car, and I can't. Still, every day we make hundreds of decisions that determine the shape and direction of our lives. And scripture teaches that humans will be held accountable by God for every thought we think, every deed we carry out, and every decision we make. Before God, none of us will have any excuse for the life we lived because everything we do, we do willfully. We could summarize what the Bible says about man's responsibility like this. Every decision humans make in God's universe is made willfully. Every decision humans make in God's universe is made willfully. This is the responsibility of man. Now we tend to respond in one of two ways when we are confronted with these two realities. Some of us just decide that because we can't understand how these things fit together, we might as well just ignore it altogether. We just are content to not consider these truths at all. There can be a that's for the theologian's mentality. But here's why we can't respond that way. Because whatever God has revealed to us in Scripture, He has revealed to us for our good. Whatever God has revealed to us for our Scripture, He's revealed to us for our good. So we can't say to Him, that's okay, God, you don't need to go into that. No, if He's revealed it, then we need to know it. On the other hand, some of us tend to maximize one of these truths at the expense of the other. We identify ourselves with theological systems so that someone makes much of God's sovereignty 
and very little of man's responsibility. Or someone makes much of man's responsibility and very little of God's sovereignty. But of course, this is wrong too, because when we do this, we are essentially muting the voice of God when we don't like what we hear. Just like Thomas Jefferson snipped away at miracles in Scripture, we are snipping away at our Bibles to create a revelation that we can understand and that, and that we are okay with. No, we need to hear and receive and emphasize all that God has said, not just part of it. What we need to realize is that God himself, in his word, reveals that he is sovereign and that we are responsible And he has revealed these things for a reason. The mystery of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility has been revealed to us first so that we might come to God for salvation. He has revealed these things to us first so we can come to him for salvation, but second, so that we might praise God when we come. God has revealed that we are responsible so that we would come to him and he's revealed he is sovereign so that we would praise him as the Savior. And this is my twofold prayer this morning, church, that we today would come to God for salvation and that we would praise him as we come. That we would praise him as the Savior. You can open your Bibles to Matthew 11. Our passage this morning is Matthew 11, verses 20 through 30. We've been in a series through the Gospel of Matthew called Following the Fulfillment. And in this section in Matthew, we're getting to a a critical juncture in Jesus' ministry where he has been doing quite quite a few miracles and people aren't responding the way they should. Now this passage this morning is one of a few passages in Scripture where we see both God's sovereignty and man's responsibility at the very same time. You see, the biblical writers do this. They they didn't have the same questions we have, I guess. Maybe it's where our our time and place, but they, they, under the Spirit's inspiration, would would, would write about both these realities without without even wondering how do they fit together because that's, that's not God's, that's not the point. The point is not to understand them. The point is to believe them and to respond to them. And, and that's, that's the goal this morning, church. I know that we're about to get into some difficult waters. Truths that are hard for us to grasp and to receive and to respond to. And yet I want to encourage you as we begin looking at the text today that you would not allow your questions to keep you from the response that God is calling us to make this morning. I want to ask you to pray for a moment right now and to ask God to give you a receptive, humble spirit to his revelation. Ask God to give you a disposition to his word that says whatever you say, God, because you've said it, I believe it. Take a minute to pray that way before we read this passage this morning. Our passage is Matthew 11, verses 20 through 30. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you 
had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Here's the main idea this morning, church. The God who is sovereign in salvation saves all who respond to his revelation. The God who is sovereign in salvation saves all who respond to his revelation. The God who is sovereign in salvation saves all who respond to his revelation. This truth comes out through this passage as section by section we see a back and forth of, of seeing an aspect of God's sovereignty in salvation and then a call to respond to that truth. There's a back and forth in this passage. God's sovereignty, our response. God's sovereignty, our response. And so what we're going to see this morning are three aspects of God's sovereignty and salvation. And with each aspect, we're going to see a response that we must have if we will be saved. Three aspects of God's sovereignty and salvation that will lead to three responses we must have. So first, the first aspect of God's sovereignty and salvation is this. God sovereignly gives revelation according to his gracious will. God sovereignly gives revelation according to his gracious will. We see this in verses 20 through 24. The passage begins in verse 20 by telling us, Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. This verse frames the whole passage for us. And to understand it, we need to take a minute to think about Jesus' ministry up to this point. So Jesus' public ministry had two aspects to it. His message and his miracles. That, you can think about everything he did in his ministry through, through one of those two aspects. His, his, his message and his miracles. Now his message was straightforward. His message was this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was a proclamation that God's kingdom was arriving in him. And this proclamation called for a simple response, repentance. Now repentance is one of those words we throw around a good bit, but we don't define enough. So this morning I want to have us remember what repentance means. Repentance is not just saying you're sorry for sin. Repentance is not, is not just saying, I'm, I'm sorry I did that. Repentance is not trying to do better after you sin. No, repentance is turning away from sin and turning to God. Repentance 
is a heart-level commitment to stop living for your sinful desires and to start living for the glory of God. Repentance is being sorrowful by the fact that you've sinned against God. And at the same time, joyfully committing yourself to a lifestyle of loving obedience to God. Repentance is relinquishing your rebellious disposition toward God and taking on a loving and submissive disposition toward God. This is what Jesus was calling people to in his message. Repent. Lay down your arms. Turn away from your sin. Submit to God in love. Now, the other aspect of Jesus' ministry was his miracles. Now, if you've been with us through Matthew, you've seen these with us. We've seen Jesus heal the sick. We've seen Jesus open the eyes of the blind. We've seen Jesus cast out demons, make the lame walk, make the mute speak. Jesus did things that no one else could do, and he did them all the time. Why? Because these miracles served as the evidence of his message. The miracles authenticated the message. The miracles showed what I'm saying is true. The kingdom of heaven is breaking in through me. That's what the miracles did. But here's the situation at this point in Jesus' ministry. The people who have seen his miracles have not responded to his message. The people who have received the clear evidence of Jesus' identity have not repented of their sins and turned to God in faith. They were excited about it. They were, they were glad he was here, but they were not repenting. That's what Jesus is addressing in this passage, and here's what he says. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you have been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Woe is the word of judgment used by the prophets against the unrepentant. And here, Jesus pronounces woe against the cities where his miracles have been done. Because though they saw the miracles of Jesus, they did not heed the message of Jesus. They did not repent. But look, Jesus goes further than simply saying, woe to you. He shockingly says that the wicked Gentile cities of Tyre and Sidon will face a lesser judgment than these Jewish cities. He says, if they had seen what you have seen, they would have repented. But because you've rejected an even greater revelation than they've ever had, you will face a greater judgment than they ever will. He continues along the same lines in verses 23 and 24. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you have been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Now let me remind you that Capernaum was Jesus' home base for ministry. This is where most of his miracles have been done. But again, though the people of Capernaum had seen the miracles... They did not respond to the message. They did not turn away from their sins. And this time, even more shockingly, Jesus compares Capernaum to Sodom. You guys remember Sodom, right? Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom is the biblical epitome of a wicked city. Abraham interceded for Sodom. He said, God, if there's, if there's ten righteous people, will you spare it? And God said, yes, if there's ten. But you know what? There weren't ten. The city was fully given over to terrible wickedness. God destroyed it entirely. And yet, Jesus says that if the people of Sodom would have seen what the people of Capernaum have been seeing, 
If they would have witnessed Jesus opening the eyes of the blind, making the lame walk, casting out demons, Jesus says that even they would have repented. If the wicked city of Sodom had seen the miracle of Jesus, they would have turned away from their sins. They would have still stood this day. And again, Jesus declares that the people of Capernaum will be judged more severely than the people of Sodom because they rejected a greater revelation than the people of Sodom ever received. These are unbelievable and weighty verses, church, and there's a few things we need to understand from them. First, we need to see that God does not reveal himself equally to all people, but rather he reveals himself according to his own gracious will. That's a difficult truth, and I'm going to say it again. God does not reveal himself equally to all people, but rather he reveals himself according to his own gracious will. Listen, the people of Tyre and Sidon and Sodom did not receive the same revelation that the people of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum received. And Jesus tells us that if they had, they would have repented. Begs the question, though, so why didn't God reveal more to them? If God knew, they would have repented had they known more. And if God could have revealed more, why didn't he? And here's why. Because the people of Tyre and Sidon and Sodom had already rejected the revelation that God did give to them. According to Romans 1, all people from every nation have received true revelation of God through creation. The created world reveals God fully enough that all people know in their hearts that he deserves all glory and worship from us. And yet we all reject that revelation. No one responds to the revelation of God in nature with true worship. And listen, it is not unjust of God to withhold more revelation. It's not unjust of God to say, you've rejected what I showed you, and I'm not going to show you anymore. God is in the right to judge us for the revelation that we've rejected. And the only reason that some receive further revelation is because of his grace, his gracious will. No one deserves revelation from God. It's a gift. But God graciously, graciously does give it to some. This leads to the second point. We need to see that we will be judged according to the revelation we've received, not just the deeds we've carried out. Listen, on the day of judgment, God will judge righteously, and he will punish sin justly. This is what we all want. I mean, when someone does something in our world, particularly heinous, we want a judge to justly punish that, don't we? We don't want it to be more than it should be or less than it should be. God's judgment will be perfect. He will not punish anyone any more or any less than they deserve. But listen, he will not be simply examining our actions in and of themselves. He will be examining our actions in light of the knowledge we've been given. Tyre and Sidon and Sodom were incredibly wicked cities. But they didn't see what the people of Galilee saw. So from God's perspective, the wickedness of these Gentile cities is less than the wickedness of these Galilean cities. Because the Galilean cities were rejecting such a greater revelation. 
And let's apply this to our own day. We live in a wicked world. We live in a wicked society. We can point to Islamic terrorism. We can point to Chinese genocide. We can point to Western sexual immorality, all as examples of rampant wickedness. And yet, someone who hears the scriptures regularly on Sunday mornings and lives an outwardly decent life without true repentance will be judged more severely than all of these others. In reality, the revelation that you are receiving today in this moment is greater than the revelation that the people of Galilee received. You know so much more than they knew. We know that Jesus is the Son of God incarnate who died for our sins and rose again to the Father's right hand and is coming again one day. And so we can truly say, Woe to you who hear this gospel and do not repent. It will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the wicked in this world who have never heard than for you who have heard and rejected the gospel. Hearing does nothing for you if you do not repent. This leads us to the first response we need to have today. God sovereignly gives revelation according to his gracious will, but we must respond to the revelation of God by repenting of our sins. Respond to the revelation of God that you've received by repenting of your sins. Turn away from sin and turn to God today. Relinquish control of your life and surrender to God today. With true sorrow, confess and turn from selfishness, from laziness, from sexual immorality, from gossip, from bitterness, from passiveness, from greed, from lying, from worldliness. Turn away from these things today and turn to God in joyful submission to his loving rule over your life. I call you to repent this morning in response to the revelation that God has given you. God sovereignly gives revelation according to his gracious will, and we must repent. The second aspect of God's sovereignty and salvation is this. Second aspect, God sovereignly hides the truth from the proud and reveals the truth to the humble. God sovereignly hides the truth from the proud and reveals the truth to the humble. Verse 25 begins like this. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. This verse shows us a prayer of praise that Jesus makes at this time to God. Notice how he addresses God. Father, Lord of heaven and earth. That's who God is. God is the Father of Jesus Christ, and God is the Lord of heaven and earth. That, that's who God is. He is intimately related to Jesus, and he is absolutely sovereign over everything the Father of Jesus Christ, and the Sovereign King of all things. That's who Jesus is addressing. Now notice that Jesus is thanking the Father, he's praising the Father, and he praises the Father for two things. Two, two praises here. First, thank you, Father, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. Thank you, Father, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. So what is Jesus thanking God for here? Well, these things refers to the teaching of Jesus about himself and about his kingdom 
Those who saw all, all the teaching we've seen in Matthew are these things. It refers to the truth of the kingdom. And then the wise and understanding, what is, what is that referring to? It's a way of describing those in the world who view themselves as having wisdom and understanding. It's a way to describe the spiritually proud in this world. Those who think they know. So here's the first thing Jesus thanks the Father for. I thank you, Father, that you have hidden the truths of the kingdom from those who are proud. I thank you, Father, that you have hidden the truths of the kingdom from those who are proud. That's the first praise. The second thing Jesus praises the Father for is this. He says, thank you, Father, that you have revealed these things to little children. When we hear that word little children, we should really think about those babies that were up here a few minutes ago. Little children are unable to take care of themselves. They're, they depend on their parents entirely. They're, they're completely insufficient on their own. Unlike the wise and understanding, little children are those who are weak and dependent and needy. It's a picture of the humility that contrasts the wise and understanding. So here's the second thing Jesus thanks the Father for. He says, I thank you that you've revealed the truths of the kingdom to those who are humble. I thank you that you've revealed the truths of the kingdom to those who are humble. Church, we need to receive the truth of Jesus' words here. God hides truth, and God reveals truth. God hides truth, and God reveals truth. There is no other way to look at this passage besides to say, God hid these things to some. And God revealed these things to others. That is what it says. God, God obscures the truth of the kingdom as a judgment on human pride. To those who think they are something, God obscures the truth so that they cannot understand. And then as an expression of mercy to the humble, God reveals the truth of the kingdom. And listen, Jesus not only acknowledges this, Jesus praises God for this. Jesus praises God both for hiding the truth in the proud and revealing the truth to the humble. Why would, why would Jesus praise God for this? Why would Jesus thank God for these things? And here's why, at the end of verse 26, for such was your gracious will. Jesus praises God for his sovereign hiding and revealing of truth because Jesus loves the will of God. Jesus rejoices when God accomplishes his will, whether that will be the hiding of truth from the proud or the revealing of truth to the humble. God is praiseworthy in both actions. God is worthy of praise in both his righteous judgments and his gracious mercies. This is a God-centered view of the universe, isn't it? This is not a man-centered view. The universe exists for the glory of God. And because God is glorified in both the hiding and revealing of truth, we should praise his will continually. Now again, not only is God sovereign in this hiding and revealing, but we are responsible. Let's think about this. If God's will is to hide truth from the proud and his will is to reveal the truth to the humble, then what is the response we must have? Why is Jesus praying this out loud for people to hear? For those who are listening, this is the second response that we must see this morning. We must respond to the will of God by humbling ourselves. We must respond to the will of God by humbling ourselves. We must set aside our misguided notions that we are spiritually something when we are spiritually nothing. Jesus himself says later in Matthew, 
Calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So church, I call you this morning to humble yourself. Become like a little child before God. Become like a little child before God. Confess I, I am nothing, I can do nothing, I have nothing, I have no recourse in and of myself, I absolutely, utterly need you. Humble yourself before him and ask him to reveal the glory of Jesus to you. So what we've seen so far, God sovereignly gives revelation according to his gracious will, which means we need to respond with repentance of our sins. God sovereignly hides truth from the proud and reveals truth to the humble, so we must, we must humble ourselves before him. And here's the third and final aspect of God's sovereignty in salvation. God sovereignly entrusts saving authority to his son. God sovereignly entrusts saving authority to his son. Look at verse 27. Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So immediately, after praising the Father for his sovereignty and salvation, Jesus makes this declaration, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. In other words, the one who has all authority has given me all authority. We've seen this already in the Gospel. Jesus has authority in his teaching he has authority over sickness. He has authority to calm storms. He has authority to cast out demons. He has authority to make the lame walk. He has authority to forgive sins. Now, here's another aspect of his authority. He has authority to reveal the Father. He has authority to reveal the Father. Look what he says next. He says, No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. First, do you hear the astonishing claim of Jesus here? Again, all the time, if you're listening, Jesus is saying the most astonishing things. He's calling God, my Father. And he's saying, no, no one knows him but me. And no one knows me but him. Jesus is claiming to be the unique Son of God the Father. And he says that he and the Father have a mutually exclusive knowledge of one another. He's not saying that no one has ever known God in any sense of the word no. He's speaking of a true relational knowledge that has existed between him and the Father from eternity past. Truly knowing God because he has always been one with God. He's saying no one can know the Son except the Father. No one can know the Father except the Son. Not like this. What he's talking about, we actually see this in human families to an extent. Like, you know my family to an extent, but there's no way for you to know my family like we know each other. There's no way you can know us like we know each other because we live together. We are a family. We know each other like no one else can. The only way that you can know us that way is if you are somehow brought into the life of our family. Let me ask, did any, did any of you think that you knew your in-laws before you got married? Like, who thought you knew what they were like? And then you got married... And now you know them, right? Now you know what your in-laws are like. There's, there's something about being in the family, truly in the family, that gives a knowledge that you cannot otherwise have. 
There's a knowledge we can only attain by being part of the family. You know what? That's precisely what Jesus came to do. He says, no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. This is the authority that the Father has entrusted to the Son, the authority to reveal him. Authority to give true knowledge of God. The Son of God left heaven and took on flesh to reveal the Father to whomever he chooses. This is the authority that God has sovereignly entrusted to his Son. So, I want to ask this question, exactly how does the Son reveal the Father? How how does this work? How does the Son reveal the Father to us? Well, listen to this interaction between Jesus and his disciples in the Gospel of John. John chapter 14, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. It's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever's seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? You know, I'm like my dad in some ways, but I'm very unlike my dad in other ways. If you get to know me, then you basically just get to know me. And if you want to know my dad, I'll introduce you to my dad sometime. But you've got to get to know my dad. But here's the thing about God the Father and his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is not different from his father. Jesus does not have his own unique personality from his father. We cannot say, well, the father is like this, and the son, he's a little different. He's like this. No. People try to do that. They say the God of the Old Testament, God the Father, he's mighty and holy and wrathful. But Jesus, his son, he's, he's gracious and kind and merciful. No, that way of thinking is completely unbiblical. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. How does Jesus reveal the Father to us? By revealing himself to us. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the exact imprint of the nature of God. He is the radiance of the glory of God. God has sovereignly entrusted Jesus with the authority to reveal him, and Jesus does that by revealing himself. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father, and we need to go deeper into this church. How does Jesus reveal himself to us? How does he reveal himself most fully and most clearly and most gloriously? He does it at the cross. Do you want to know the Father? Then know his Son. Do you want to know his son? Then look to the cross. This is the one true God. In righteous mercy, paying the punishment for our sins. In holy love, taking our place. In mighty humility, conquering our enemies. In heavenly wisdom, accomplishing our salvation. This is God. This is the Father. This is the Son. There's no glory in the universe that compares to the glory of God revealed in the cross of Christ. And if you want to know this God, to truly know him the way that you were made to know him, the way that little MJ and Ethan were were made to know him, then you need to listen to Jesus' invitation at the end of this passage. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, 
for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Church, next week we're going to take our time to look at these amazing words. But we couldn't leave it out of this passage today because it is connected to everything we've seen so far. The God who is sovereign in salvation saves all who respond to his revelation. And church, there is no greater revelation of God than the cross of Jesus Christ. And this is the response Jesus calls for you to make today. Come to me. Come to me. Now, when we read in Scripture about the sovereignty of God and salvation, sometimes we can become trapped in our own wonderings and our own questions that we have, especially this one. How do I know God's chosen me? Have you ever asked yourself that? How do I know God's chosen me? Here's how you know. You come. You come. You simply come. In sheer grace, the Son reveals the Father to whomever he chooses, and then the Son immediately turns to all people and says, Come to me. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says it like this in John 6.37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And so this morning, this is the call of response. Come to Jesus. Whether it be for the first time or for the 10,000th time in your life, come to Jesus today. Come to Jesus this morning. Turn away from your sins and turn to him in repentance. Turn away from your pride and humble yourself before him like a little child. Bring your heart Bring your sins, bring your need, bring your life to him today. And listen, as you come, as you come, come giving all the glory to God for his gracious and loving will to reveal himself to you. As you come, come in the knowledge that God has shown himself to you that God has opened your eyes, that God is your Savior. And give all the glory to him in coming. But come, church, this morning I pray even now that you would come and bring your heart to Jesus in repentance and faith.